Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Fear-mongering. China accuses the United States of overreacting to coronavirus. Stocks there slump. Taking no chances. Hong Kong's Carrie Lam suspends ferries from Macau and restricts border crossings from the mainland. And a raucous at the caucus. Who'll come out on top as Iowa voters officially kick off the 2020 election race. It's Monday. Let's make a move. once again to first move this Monday morning. Great to be back with you. Great to be back here at the New York Stock Exchange. But I have to tell you, the action's not here. It's all about Asia and what we saw in the overnight session today. Take a look specifically at what we saw in China. The Shanghai Composite plunging more than 7.5%. That was the worst daily drop in some four and a half years. It was the first day of trade, of course, since before the Lunar New Year holiday. So much of that plunge that we saw for Chinese stocks was about playing catch up on the weakness that we saw in the region last week. It's just one session, I have to say, but it was less than many had feared, perhaps due to the actions of the Chinese central bank. They cut rates and pumped billions of dollars of cash into the system to calm investors' nerves. Elsewhere, though, in Asia, and this is important too, I think, things seem to stabilize. The Hong Kong markets actually ended the session in the green, and that's how the U.S. session is shaping up right now. Futures are higher, taking a cue from a stronger European session too. It does, though, follow the worst day for U.S. stocks since October. U.S. majors fell 1.5% plus in Friday's session. I tell you what, now the Dow and the S&P negative on the year. The Dow has fallen 3% from record highs set just a week or so ago. Only 3%, I should perhaps add there. What about the 10-year yield as well? A gauge of sentiment at this moment. A little bit firmer today after that fell to October lows on Friday too. Wells Fargo warning that yields could fall a further 30% if the global health crisis intensifies. The coronavirus outbreak is once again our top driver. Let me bring you up to speed with the latest at this moment. The Philippines has confirmed the first death outside China this weekend. Right now, more than 17,000 cases and over 360 deaths have been reported worldwide. Hong Kong closing all but three border crossings to the mainland, as I mentioned, and China is accusing the United States of overreacting to the outbreak. David Culver joins us once again from Beijing. David, great to have you with us. I want to hone in on what the Chinese government have said today about the U.S. reaction, spreading a degree of panic by shipping their nationals out of China and restricting travel. And then we've seen other countries follow suit. Talk us through what they had to say today. Oh, Julia, they were furious. And the mm. foreign ministry coming out through their spokesperson, and, and they held this on an online chat with journalists because they're trying to avoid congregating masses together, and so they don't want to spread the virus even more. So even on this online chat, you could feel their fury. I mean, they expressed this in several paragraphs, part of it essentially saying that they believe the U.S. has overreacted here, that they were the first to start this travel restriction against China, they were the first to bring out their diplomatic personnel, and that 
they were the first to essentially move forward with these growing concerns that this is larger than it's being portrayed. And they say, you know, this is a concern. The coronavirus is an issue here. But they also point to the U.S. and they say, look at the flu and look how many people die and are infected with that each year and this year alone. So that's where the foreign ministry is coming forward with this. But they also seem to be using this as an opportunity to question the U.S. bringing in their planes uh, to evacuate American citizens. And here's why I say that. There was a plane that was scheduled to take American citizens out of the city of Wuhan and that they would bring them back to the United States. But that was delayed. I was talking to some of those Americans who said, we don't know what happened. We were just told it got pushed back. It seemed to coincide with the foreign ministry issuing these very harsh remarks against the U.S. And one thing the foreign ministry pointed out when we asked them if this was punishment for the U.S.'s actions, they said no comment on that. But they did point out that Wuhan's airport only has a certain amount of capacity and that they need to make capacity for aircraft that have medical supplies. What are they implying there? Well, Julia, if you look at other nations that have evacuated their citizens, South Korea, Japan, they have brought in planes of supplies so as to help out with the dire need here. It seemed to suggest that the U.S. should be doing the same if they're going to be landing aircrafts in Wuhan. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said that they would consider doing that, Julia. Yeah, I mean, that's a quite stark comparison, isn't it, between between the two nations here. I just wonder, I mean, if we go back to last week, the World Health Organization deciding not to suggest, recommend restrictions to trade and travel here, it, it meant that countries like the United States and others had to act unilaterally. You have to make a choice whether you do what your nationals are perhaps asking, and that is, please get me out of here. It's a tough balancing act, but to your point, bringing in medication and, and is. support is is helpful. Yeah, no question, Julia. And, and, and you're right. They feel the pressure from the U.S. side of things. It wasn't only the citizens who are raising pressure there, but you look at certain unions. I mean, you have the airline union there with flight attendants and pilots likewise saying, hey, we're concerned about going to and from mainland China. So that's something they had to face. And then other countries were also moving forward with certain restrictions that weren't as uh, a widespread, I would say, as the U.S.'s travel restriction. But still, they were suggesting that, for example, in Singapore, if you you were a student or a staff member at a school, and this was early on, they said if you had gone anywhere in mainland China, you couldn't come into a school for 14 days. So it just seemed that the U.S. came in with this oversweeping kind of travel restriction altogether that uh, really has angered the Chinese foreign ministry. Yeah, and clearly a very delicate moment politically between the two nations already. David Culver there in Beijing for us. Thank you so much for that. All right, I want to move on and talk about the market reaction. $445 billion worth of market value wiped from Chinese markets in the session this Monday, the first trading day, of course, since the Lunar New Year holiday. John Defteris has been watching all the action for us. Not to uh, take any attention away, John, of course, from the people that are infected ill here, but wow, what a reaction for the markets and currency weakness. It was cross-asset reaction here in the Chinese markets. Yeah, it, almost a whiff of uh, desperation, I would say, by the Central Bank of uh, China, Julia, coming out with a very bold statement saying we're going to put uh, liquidity of $173 billion, and then the other signal was we're going to keep interest rates low. Uh, and even the criticism of the United States here showing the fact that China is a little bit more vulnerable now than it was during the SARS crisis of 2002 and 2003. What a market route, as you were suggesting here, uh, nearly half a trillion dollars if you take the combined indices of Shanghai and Shenzhen uh, 
a loss of an average of 8%. If we were looking for a silver lining, it was the fact that the Nikkei wasn't down sharply. Hong Kong actually went up after the route that we saw uh, last week. But I think, and we had this conversation last Thursday in London, we have to think in a larger context of the influence of China. Everybody's looking at the supply chains within the country and Hubei province where Wuhan is based right now. Yes, it's clogging up the system, no doubt about it. Uh, but number two, this is a, an economy that ranked at $13 trillion at the end of 2018. We're looking for the final numbers, but the next seven economies in Asia at up to $12 trillion. So I'm looking at a much bigger influence of what's going to happen in China going forward. We're seeing the early expectations of a drop of two percentage points uh, in terms of their growth, but coming from a very low level of 6%, which is the worst in nearly three decades for China. So there's more trouble ahead, and it's going to filter out into other economies in that region. Yeah, and assuming you believe the numbers, I mean, when we're talking about a forehandle here for, for Chinese growth, it's in comparison to a country like the United States, perhaps zero to negative, just on a relative basis. But I do want to hone in on that and the reaction that we've seen in the oil markets, because clearly oil investors are suggesting that the economic fallout here perhaps could be uh, really significant. There's now rumours, and you were talking about this, what, when we were in Davos two weeks ago, the prospect perhaps of OPEC coming together here and OPEC Plus and deciding to do something to shore up support for these oil prices. What are your thoughts here, John? Well, the narrative is changing rapidly because the sources I was speaking to just a week ago, Julia said they didn't want to show any signs of uh, panic whatsoever. But this is uh, China, the vacuum cleaner, if you will, uh, of the world. It hoovers up all kinds of commodities, oil, iron ore, uh, the grains. But we're seeing the sharpest response when it comes to oil right now. Uh, Saudi Arabia is the exporter to the world. Two million of the seven million that it exports goes to China. So we're hearing reports that the new minister of energy, Abdulaziz bin Salman, wants to call an emergency meeting and be bold about it and say, let's cut another million barrels a day. But that would take the OPEC plus agreement, Julia, listen to this, to 2.7. The other option is to go with a half a million barrels a day and send a signal to the market that we're ready to do more. I don't think that would move the needle on prices. So they're almost backed into a corner here now to act and act swiftly. They have the technical committee uh, meeting in Vienna. So we'll start getting some indications either tomorrow or the day after. But the Russians were not on board with this. They kind of reluctantly in December when I saw the minister uh, in Vienna said, we'll go along with the deeper cuts. But they were hoping for some easing of this measure in the first half of uh, 2020. So I don't see them rushing to take a million barrels a day off the market. They don't know if this uh, drop that we see, which is three million barrels a day already in China, is going to last into the second quarter or not. So they don't want to be giving a knee-jerk reaction and then having to respond right away and put oil back on the market. Yeah, creating some of the volatility that they're trying to avoid here. So much uncertainty. John Defterius, thank you so much for that update there. To Macau now, I mentioned that uh, Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, suspending ferries to Macau. Ivan Watson has uh, been looking at the fallout. Listen in. Julia, Macau is arguably the world's gambling capital. But the coronavirus crisis has really put the administrators of this city in a real dilemma because their economy relies on millions of mainland Chinese tourists coming across the internal boundary to this semi-autonomous corner of China to come and spend money in its casinos and in its hotels. But now the city's government, they're trying to find a way to stop the flow of those people without completely killing the economy because they don't want the deadly virus to take root 
in this former Portuguese colony. This is what the coronavirus crisis looks like. An ambulance delivers a patient to the emergency room in the tiny former Portuguese colony of Macau. Health workers fully protected against the new disease. The authorities in Macau aren't taking any chances. They are informing the public that if you suspect you have symptoms of coronavirus and that you've been in touch with somebody that you fear may also be sick somewhere in mainland China, call for an ambulance which will deliver you here to the emergency entrance of the city's main public hospital. Images from inside the isolation ward. At least seven patients are being treated here. The health emergency has had a startling impact on this semi-autonomous corner of China. Macau, with its small population of around 600,000 people, is normally a major tourism hotspot, welcoming nearly 40 million visitors last year alone. The main draw, Macau's towering casinos. This is the gambling capital of the world, with a casino industry that dwarfs Las Vegas. But since the coronavirus outbreak, tourism to Macau dropped 87% in January compared to the previous year. You've never seen it this empty before? Yeah, never. I never saw something like this. Albano Martinez is a Portuguese economist long based in Macau. You go to the streets, I never saw streets empty. You go to the main square, totally empty. I never saw this in my life, and I am here from 1981, so too long. Never. I think people are scared, maybe scared because of the speed of these infections. The Macau authorities say they have been rounding up every visitor from the Chinese province of Hubei, the origin of the coronavirus. Those people get a choice, either leave the territory or go into quarantine. But they're drawing a line when it comes to the critical engine of the city's economy. Could one of your health measures be to close the casinos? We do not rule out this possibility, the city's economy secretary tells me. But at this point in time, the casinos in Macau are totally safe. For now, Macau's glittering gambling houses are still open. But like the rest of China, this city is struggling with the new virus. And everyone here agrees this is just the beginning of the crisis. So, Julia, what a drastic measure the city's officials took, sending the police around to dozens of hotels here and rounding up every person they could find from mainland China's Hubei province. Now, on top of that, the president of a casino workers union has argued publicly that all of the city's casinos and hotels should be closed to protect the people who worked there. But of course, the city's administrators, they're not ready to take that dramatic step yet. I walked through one of these huge casinos, the Galaxy Casino, which feels like it's longer than a football field in length. And that was a surreal sight because you couldn't see a single exposed face there. All the workers, the waitresses, bartenders, card dealers, security officers all had masks on. And the relatively small number of customers there were wearing them as well. The only time anybody exposes their faces is when they're going through security to get into the casino. And that's when you have to show your face to a thermal camera to ensure 
that you don't have a fever. Julia. Ivan Watson there in Macau. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. In Washington, the U.S. Senate will reconvene in the coming hours for closing arguments in the impeachment trial against President Donald Trump. This comes after Senate Republicans blocked Democrats' effort to call witnesses last week. The trial is expected to conclude on Wednesday with President Trump's acquittal. And the stakes are high in the U.S. state of Iowa. The 2020 presidential nominating contest kicks off with the state's first in the nation caucuses. Eleven Democratic candidates are currently running in the race for the White House. And Jeff Zeleny is live in Des Moines Forest. Jeff, great to have you with us. If you're in the United States, you can't get away from this and you probably know what's going on. But for international viewers, why does Iowa matter so much? And tell us what to expect. Julia, Iowa matters because it's the beginning of this long process to pick a Democratic presidential nominee to challenge President Trump. Uh, Iowa has been uh, one of the first stops for uh, really several decades on to New Hampshire next week and then other states. So it matters because it's first. It doesn't matter because it's more important than other states. But there is no question all of the candidates have been spending most of the year here uh, investing uh, millions and millions to get their message out. It is the place that launched Barack Obama back in 2008. It's the place that launched George W. Bush back in 2000. President Trump, Donald Trump narrowly lost Iowa, but uh, it showed that he was a serious candidate. So this is a place where voters have taken a strong measure of these candidates for the last year, asking them questions, uh, seeing how it's going. So that's why this is important. So this will not determine who the, the Democratic nominee is, but it will determine what voters are thinking as they move forward. And Bernie Sanders is uh, ending this in a strong position. So all eyes are on Bernie Sanders. If this is the um, moment for him, a lot of uh, you know, certainly high stakes for Joe Biden, the former vice president here who's been campaigning aggressively. This is the third time He's run for president. His hopes have always been dashed here in Iowa. We'll see if they are tonight. But of course, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, and the other candidates as well. So this is the place that can make or break a candidacy before this uh, show moves on to New Hampshire next week, Julia. Yeah, what a show. Jeff Zeleny, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for explaining that there. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd joins us. He gives his views on the coronavirus outbreak, the reaction from nations, and, of course, the bushfires in Australia. Stay with CNN. Thinking. Welcome back to First Move, live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, where U.S. stocks look set to bounce back from Friday's losses. The big theme, of course, to what we saw, losses in China overnight. I want to talk this through. Salita Marcelli is Deputy Chief Investment Officer for the Americas at UBS Global Wealth Management and joins us now. Great to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. Happy Super Bowl Monday. One of your big themes for 2020 was the re-emergence or the emergence of emerging markets. Explain why, and then we're going to talk about whether anything's changed in light of current events. Sure. So uh, there are two main reasons why we believe emerging markets were going to be re-emerging. And by the way, putting 
aside, uh, you know, barring aside the delay that might come from the spread of the coronavirus, we still feel confident that this might uh, actually get realized this year. So the first reason is around growth, yes. right? We believe emerging markets provide better growth prospects compared to developed markets, that the difference between the uh, growth differential will widen this year. And the second reason is valuations. So on growth, uh, two reasons for that. One is uh, the benefits of the phase one deal signing yes. uh, is going to accrue with uh, more to emerging markets. And the second is that accommodative central bank policy, right? Uh, the Fed's cuts last year started a, a chain reaction of global monetary easing. And even though central banks are still, uh, developed market central banks have, po have paused for the time being, but emerging markets are still continuing. Um, and in terms of valuation, the second reason there is right now emerging markets are trading at a historically cheaper levels than uh, developed markets, and we think there's going to be a catch-up there. So growth outperformance in emerging markets versus developed markets yes. and um, valuation Precious. just relatively cheaper. Okay. And by emerging markets in particular, you were talking Asia, you were talking Japan or Asia X Japan, let's be clear. Um, okay. So now talk okay. coronavirus and yes. what you're thinking is here. Look, um, you know, the spread of the coronavirus at its core is a human tragedy with an unknown outcome. Agreed. Right? It's impossible to predict right now with 100% certainty how this is going to evolve. And markets hate uncertainty, and we have that in spades right now, resulting in this uh, increased volatility and sell-off in markets. That said, uh, we are encouraged by the um, extraordinary measures China has taken, yes. coupled with unprecedented uh, global mobilization to contain this virus. And we think eventually it will prove to be effective. So it will certainly have a negative impact on growth in the near term. But we think the impact on the long-term economic growth should be limited. You know, it's interesting. There are a couple of things that you mentioned that actually stood out for me. It's tough to gauge what the economic impact is going to be. One, because of spread of misinformation, because of the prevalence of social media, particularly compared to SARS. Um, but also, if you look on a relative basis, the, the growth of e-commerce in China, in Southeast Asia in particular, actually provides a, a kicker to consumption there that perhaps wasn't there in, you know, decades past. Yes, exactly. I mean, the, the three structural changes, two of which you mentioned, uh, the online uh, spending uh, is actually could limit the consumer damage there. But the spread of fear uh, through social media is very important. And fear usually drives economic behavior as well. And the third thing I would say is the rise of China's role in global manufacturing. Yes, so that could actually uh, be a reason for uh, supply chain disruptions more than we but what you're ultimately saying is it's a delay, not a derailment exactly. of your call. Exactly, delay, not a derailment. We think, assuming it's successful containment, we think the growth is going to pick up in the latter quarters. I think the China is certainly going to be impacted this quarter, maybe into next quarter. But with a successful containment, we could see growth pick up in the latter quarters because there's pent-up consumer demand. But also there's potential government stimulus. And China is doing all it can, going all in to make sure they're, they're most likely going to be stabilizing the economy and making sure the market is, uh, is orderly. Yeah, I mean, we saw that already overnight. And all central banks, I think, around the world on the front foot here to react if necessary. 
Great to have you with us. Thank you so much you. for that. Salita Marcelli there, Deputy Chief Investment Officer for the Americas at UBS Global Wealth Management. We are counting down to the market open this morning. I can give you a quick look at the futures. We're expected to see gains taking back some of the losses that we saw in Friday's session where we lost more than 1.5% across these U.S. majors. We've got the S&P 500, Watson, 3% off recent record highs too. So a bit of a pullback, but on a relative basis. These markets are pretty resilient in the face of great global uncertainties. Plenty more to come from First Move. You're with CNN. Stay with us. The market open is next. move that was the opening bell here at the New York Stock Exchange and as we were discussing earlier we do have a higher start to the trading week and the fresh new month of course to first trading day of February tech stocks as you can see uh, are the best gainers in early trading after the one and a half percent drop that we saw on Friday. I showed you that in reverse order, so apologies if I confused you. This follows, though, a weaker session in China overnight. The Shanghai Composite finishing the session, as you can see, down some 7.7 percent on the first day of trading since the Lunar New Year holiday. A bit of catch up there, I think, pent up selling pressure. More than $400 billion in market value was lost in today's session alone in China. We'll see what Tuesday's session brings. But beyond the persistent coronavirus fears, important U.S. factory data is out at the top of the hour here in the United States. We've also got jobs numbers on Friday, too, and plenty more earnings. More than 70% of S&P 500 firms have beaten profit estimates so far. Just to give you a sense of what we've seen so far, let's take you through the global movers today to investors closely watching airline stocks like Delta and American today. Shares of both carriers are higher after falling some 2% plus on Friday. Delta, American and United have all announced that they are suspending flights to and from China. Apple shares are also in focus today, down some 2%, shutting down all of their stores in mainland China until February 9th due to the coronavirus outbreak. Shares fell more than 4% on Friday. Shares of ExxonMobil also lower today, trading near nine-year lows, in fact. Goldman Sachs downgrading the stock to a sell today, citing the weak outlook for oil prices. Exxon Giant reported weaker-than-expected Q4 earnings on Friday. All right, let's bring it back to the United States. The U.S. state of Iowa is holding the first in the nation caucuses in the coming hours. According to recent polls, the top tier candidates are Senator Bernie Sanders, former Vice President Joe Biden, Senator Elizabeth Warren and former Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Senator Sanders and Warren have proposed big federal spending plans with new taxes on wealthy Americans. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is skipping today's caucuses but announced his own tax plans, in fact, over the weekend. Investors are keeping a close eye on Iowa. In seven of the last nine Democratic primaries, the Iowa winner went on to become the party's presidential nominee. Financial forecaster and futurist Jason Schenker joins us now. He's president of Prestige Economics. Jason, great to have you on the show. Do you agree with that? How closely are investors watching the outcome here, particularly if we see strong gains or wins for the likes of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren? 
Well, I think that's what investors are looking for. There are a number of Democratic candidates out there, but there's a couple that investors are a bit worried about from a tax implication standpoint. It is Sanders and Warren. If they do well here, then that could rile the markets a little bit because there's never been a case where you've had a uh, a winner here or or in the top three that didn't get the nomination. So uh, if they even place in the top three, that increases the odds that they would get that nomination. And as you've already noted, really, if we look um, eight of the last 10 times, the person who won the Iowa caucus eventually does get the nomination. Yeah, the Democrats handle this very differently from the Republicans here. If we're looking ahead to 2020, how much does incumbency matter here when we look at President Trump? How important is that for who ultimately wins an election? Well, Julia, the thing is, uh, this is the, the number one statistically most significant factor that determines whether you become president, whether you get elected president, is if you already are president. And so that incumbency, it matters a whole lot because you can get eyes on screens. You're not competing against a lot of candidates. You're not spending a lot of money on the primaries. And as the president, you have the ability to really direct uh, the media to show up when you're making announcements. It's a little bit tougher as a candidate to get as much attention, especially if there's still a wide field of folks competing. And that's why most of the time incumbents get reelected. You know, it's interesting because we'll talk endlessly about Iowa, we'll then move on to some of the other primaries. But you also talk about the shy vote, the shy vote for Donald Trump here that was so impactful in the 2016 elections. What's your gauge on what that shy Donald Trump vote is today? Is it higher or is it lower or about the same than it was in 2016, particularly in light of what we've just been through with the impeachment process too? Well, I think there's a couple really big takeaways. And one is that donations, money, fundraising, what always was the proxy for if you win, doesn't really work anymore because in 2016, Hillary Clinton spent almost 50% more money than Donald Trump and Donald Trump still won. The polls really discounted what these shy Trumpers, folks who would vote for Trump, who didn't want to say they would. And I would wager now the economy is quite good. Equity markets, despite recent pullbacks, are high. Unemployment's at the lowest level in 50 years. There might be quite a few shy Trumpers out there, and that might make polls a bit foggy in terms of what we might expect. Money doesn't matter as much as it has in the past, even when you've got someone like a Mike Bloomberg here literally throwing as much money as he chooses at the campaign. Well, on the Democratic side, you've never had someone who didn't place in the first three named candidates who uh, went on to get the nomination. The fact that, that Mike Bloomberg is skipping the Iowa caucus means you'd have to have a real first in order for that to happen. But you might see a real protracted slug between the different Democratic candidates. Uh, they've, you see the poll numbers. A lot of them are quite close here in terms of how you see Sanders performing or Biden performing or Warren performing. And I know we didn't get a recent Iowa poll, but you know, the Texas Lyceum did a poll in Texas, for example, and we saw 
Uh, Biden had the lead, but Sanders was pretty close behind. We see that in a lot of different polls, and that means that you could see a pretty protracted slug to get to a Democratic nominee, and that means Mike Bloomberg might have a shot to skip the Iowa caucus, New Hampshire primary, and then come in and still get the nomination. It's still a possibility, but it would really be a first. You know, I love your adherence to data points. And for all the books that you've read, and actually I love the latest one, The Dumpster Fire Election, talking about 2020, you point out the importance of the economy and that the data point that connects the four presidents in the last century that haven't won re-election is a higher unemployment rate between the midterms and then going for re-election in that um, two years later. Jason, talk to me about coronavirus and the impact that that potentially might have on the economy and then the impact perhaps that that could have if we've got a GDP figure for the United States on a one handle in the first quarter it's not the three percent that Trump promised well you know I think the US economy is still doing pretty good if we look at uh, the U.S. economy compared to other advanced economies, U.S. is doing well. The, the Q4 number came in at 2.1%, a little bit better than expected. The business investment recession is likely to end. It's, there's been three consecutive quarters of contractions in U.S. business investment, likely to end, likely to see positive business investment in the year ahead. That's all good. The coronavirus does add risk. I think that's more maybe on a global basis, but we do have things, as earlier you had a guest talk about things like e-commerce and the like, that uh, could have a positive impact for what we'd see in consumers where there's sort of this assessed risk. So I still think we're going to see a decent GDP number this year between the one and a half and two and a half percent number, probably a little bit above two. That's going to be a pretty good year. The unemployment rate still likely to remain low. And if the unemployment rate is lower at the time of the October number, which gets released at the beginning of November, if that October unemployment number is lower than the 3.7% we saw in November of 2018 by the last century of data, we would expect that President Trump would be reelected. But if it's higher, wow. he would not be. All bets are off. <laughs> Jason Schenker, President yep. of Prestige okay. Economics, great to have you with you, and we'll have you with us, and we will get you back soon. Next, China lashes out at the U.S. over Washington's reaction to the coronavirus crisis. But what is the right response in this scenario? We'll discuss that with former Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd. He's up next. The U.S. has imposed strict travel restrictions beyond those advised by the World Health Organization. Washington has also evacuated much of its embassy staff from China. Joining us, Kevin Rudd, the former Australian Prime Minister and now the President of the Asia Society. Fantastic to have you on the show. What do you make of the Chinese accusations of an overreaction from the United States? I think the first thing we need to understand is that China is domestically are under huge political pressure. Yes. I mean, if you're President Xi Jinping at the moment and you've got this virus, uh, which has been rampaging around uh, Wuhan, and then across uh, the broader province of Hubei, and then into Hunan, and then with now infections in every single province of the country, you've got a political problem domestically. So therefore, what you're looking at domestically is maximising international support. Now, the World Health Organization is the primary means for doing that. Um, but if in the midst of all that, I think if you have statements like Secretary of State Pompeo's, that the world's greatest threat in the 21st century is the Chinese Communist Party. Personally, I just think that's pretty tone deaf in the midst of a world public health crisis. 
um, Secretary of State could make those statements any time he wants, not, not just now. now. I think that gets a big bucket of fuel, says there's a fire there and goes woof. And I'm not sure that's all that smart. Let's deal with the health crisis first, and that requires all hands to the pump. I mean, we had a, a conference call between the G7 nations today. Does a more coordinated response, is, is a more coordinated response here needed? Because if the World Health Organization last week would have said, look, we do recommend travel restrictions, we do recommend trade restrictions, then countries wouldn't have had to act unilaterally and make decisions independently here. Well, institutionally, uh, the World Health Organization uh, is a relatively weak global yes. body. We know that uh, not because of his leadership. Tedros from Ethiopia, I know very well. He's a strong individual. Uh, he um, understands public health intimately. Uh, so this is no criticism of him at all. But he leads an institution which constitutionally is weak given the structures, and we saw that evidenced uh, through the, its handling of the Ebola crisis some time ago. So that's one point. However, underneath that or surrounding that, we need to use other collaborative mechanisms. Good that the G7 health ministers are talking, but can I just suggest this? Um, the G20 exists for a purpose as well. Yes. It's 20 of the world's largest economies. It represents 90% of yes. GDP. The G7 does not include China. The G20 does. Now, I would have thought that's not a bad way to actually prosecute this at a political, public policy and public health and security way, while being mindful also of where it's going to bounce to as far as economic consequences. You know, it's, it's fascinating to go back to your point about pouring lighter fuel on the fire here and the relationship between US and China, an incredibly pivotal moment. You've just put together a series of speeches that you gave in the past year, the, the title, The Avoidable War, Reflections on US-China Relations, The End of Strategic Engagement. One of the themes that comes up is the idea of, of decoupling here. And, and I pulled out one quote, prepare for a decade of living dangerously. Never mind the decade, what about the next year heading into the 2020 elections? How do you see this playing out, even in light of the last couple of weeks of events? Tensions are still fraught. Yeah, well, they are raw. There's two factors yeah. at work here, I think. Um, one is structural. You have this massive country, the United States of America. We're in the New York Stock Exchange at the moment. It's the world's largest economy. It's going to remain that way for a while to come. But now we have structurally a huge challenger, which is the Chinese economy. If you do any analysis of aggregate economic size, aggregate military size, these two countries are getting closer in terms of a comparison of their net power. We haven't had that since the days of the Soviet Union, and even then we didn't have it because the Soviets never had a global economy. Yes. That's a structural factor. Underneath it, however, you have also a new, strong, assertive leader in China, Xi Jinping, who is pushing out in a way in which his predecessors never did. And now we have the Trump administration, which has drawn the lines on trade, open question mark about where it will now go on the rest of the US-China relationship. So when I say a year of living dangerously, I look at those structural factors, I look at the personalities of the leadership, and then I look at incendiary things like we've just been discussing. Mm. Um, and goodness knows what happens as the decade progresses on the future of Taiwan. That for me is the continuing looming geopolitical problem. There's so much to discuss. I, I, we could continue that conversation, but I do want to get your views on the Australian bushfires because you of everybody, it's something that you've been passionately talking about for a decade. You've criticised the Australian government for their response, but it's far more broad than that. Again, it's a global issue where 
I think particularly in the last two weeks coming back from Davos myself, suddenly the whole world seems to be focused on climate change. Mm. What more from a national perspective, but also globally again, do you want to see here? I think what the world saw, and I think many Australians saw with the bushfires um, this um, Australian summer, northern winter, was an unfolding apocalypse. I call it the Great Australian Inferno because this is not just bushfires. As a kid growing up, I grew up on a farm, I remember what fires were like. You'd have a big one every several years in one part of the country or another. This is across four states, simultaneously hundreds of fires. So what does it say? I think Australia is the first canary down the climate change mineshaft. And we need to understand that where we go as a country is a warning light, and if you like, a beacon light to the rest of the world, that climate change is not this esoteric, exotic thing to be discussed in political and scientific circles. Uh, It is a real unfolding economic and humanitarian and ecological disaster, which we can stop with effective political leadership. Just takes us to break down greenhouse gas emissions and we keep temperature increases uh, within 1.5 degrees centigrade. As you tried with the Paris Agreement. Well, with with Paris, which is at best one third committed, we tried at Copenhagen, partly failed. National actions, some of the actions we took in Australia and my government have continued. Others have been repealed by the Conservatives. But leaving politics to one side, for God's sake, that's where I think Greta is right. And she's just letting out this howl to the world on the part of uh, my kids' generation saying, for God's sake, get with the project. And you know something? It's doable. It's not beyond the realms of doability. So much more to discuss, but no time. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show. Kevin Rudd, former Australian Prime Minister and the President of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Thank you for that. Rounding off big tech strong earnings now. Big expectations ahead of Alphabet's numbers. We'll discuss next. Welcome back to First Move with a look at today's boardroom brief. Shares of Ingenico soaring in France after payments giant Wildline agreed to buy the company for $8.6 billion. The deal will create the world's fourth largest payments provider, Wildline stock, which also trades in Paris slightly lower in the session, as you would anticipate, for a buyer here. And shares of Ryanair are up in Ireland after the company reported a $98 million profit for its third quarter. That compares with a loss of $73 million a year earlier. Europe's largest budget airline said it raised average fares by 9% from a year ago. Bernie Ebers, the former CEO of telecoms company WorldCom, has died. Ebers was jailed in 2006 for his role in an accounting fraud worth $11 billion. He was released from prison last month due to poor health after serving 13 years. Ebers was 78 years old. Google's parent company Alphabet will report its latest results after the closing bell. Claire Sebastian joins us now for a preview. Of course, it's the first numbers that we've had since the Google CEO took over the full company here. Real expectations for more information, more clarity, it seems. The question is, will we get it, Claire? 
Yeah, this is a big question. A lot of analysts have been calling for more uh, transparency, really, from Google when it comes to their earnings reports, more information on, on how their YouTube segment is growing, how their cloud segment is growing. They don't really give much in the way of guidance, so perhaps uh, they'll be looking for more in terms of that. But, but cloud is really a big area for Google. They are fighting to take on the giants in this area, Amazon uh, and Microsoft. They're investing heavily to do that. They have been growing in terms of market share, so there'll be a lot of scrutiny on how they're doing that. And the other issue, Julia, is regulatory issues. Facebook, the other competitor in terms of online advertising, said uh, that the headwinds from global privacy regulations will continue to impact their, their ability to make money through uh, online advertising. So it seems that Google will likely be hit by those headwinds uh, as well. And then there are, of course, the investigations into antitrust issues here in the U.S. There was a report uh, about a week ago that, that state attorneys general had met with the Department of Justice, signaling some potential coordination between the two when it comes to antitrust investigations into Google. So all of that uh, is likely to come up on the call. But meanwhile, Google had a couple of misses last year in terms of, of profit and revenue. So there will be a lot of scrutiny on those results. Can they continue to see uh, revenue growth around the 20 percent mark? And will they see profits come back after a miss in the last quarter? Yeah, I remember interviewing Eric Schmidt a long time ago when he was still the chairman. And he said, look, advertising revenues are always going to be the bulk of our revenues, of our profit generation for this company. But the other interesting thing for me is what we get in terms of their other bets, the non-core items, because I've seen a number of analysts looking at this and saying, actually, if they broke this down and told us what was going on, that might help their overall valuation. What do we think of that? Well, especially since the other bets are losing quite a lot of money, Julia. It's still a very right. small part of the business, but, but in the last quarter, they lost six times more money than they actually made in the other bet segment. These are things like self-driving cars, like drone deliveries, uh, all of that. So I think there will be some scrutiny on that, and not least because if you look at this sort of one trillion club, as we call it, to the likes of Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet we include because they tipped over that valuation mark uh, a couple of weeks ago. They are all looking for the next product. They're all still growing growing revenue, uh, you know, this slowing down in a lot of cases, but they have to look for, in Google's case, the next billion user, uh, and in all of their cases, the next big product to drive that next real sort of growth push. Yes, are the best. That's what I find exciting. Thanks, Claire. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.